My name is Aaron McManus, and you are listening to the Battle Ready Podcast. Okay, so I'm here with my dad, Erwin Raphael McManus, and we are back. I went to the mountains for a few days, rode some horses. Yeah, it was a mountain in Montana. Oh, I thought it was more like prairie. There were prairies, but I was up in the mountains. Oh, wow. Very nice. It was fun. I rode horses. You rode horses or did you ride a horse? I rode, well, we rode horses. (laughs) I rode a horse. I'm just messing with you. You are just messing with me. But okay, so we want to dive right in. And this is going to be maybe a quicker episode than than most, but we have to, we're just going to be, we're going to be on it. We probably should pop around to different things that one day we'll do entire episodes about. Yes. Just to acknowledge these are serious conversations in the world around us. Yes. Okay. So first, first, first subject that I want to talk about is critical race theory. Oh, you're going to go there. I want to go there. Okay. I, 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 I follow someone. Well, I don't follow them anymore. And not, not because of this. I just realized, like, I don't know why I'm following this person. I just accidentally followed them before. And I, I, they posted this clip. And I'm, I'm not going to listen to the clip because I don't want to say who the person is. But I want to read the clips. Okay. Uh, Although he went public. He did. He yeah, did. Yeah. But this person posted about this other person. Okay. All so right. this is what it says. God has Christian theology. Satan has critical theory. These are two ideologies that are at <laughs> war in our day. And they're playing themselves out in every area, politically, economically, socially, morally, spiritually, maritally, sexually. And ultimately, here's what I'm telling you. Behind all the problems is the problem of critical race theory. And behind critical theory is the critic. It's spiritual warfare. It's a demonic battle. It's the one area that people have not considered because they don't have the spirit and they don't know Christ. And I'm here to help so I've got a talk that's about an hour long in a 35,000 word book. You can find it all at, I'm not going to say where. And if you're one of those woke joke folk, you're welcome. You're going to be offended. God has Christian theology. Satan has critical theory. So I can tell you without having ever looked at it um, before even knowing that it's a white guy. <laughs> okay. And uh, right. because Cause anything that would be against the white man has to be Satan, right? Right. Not yeah. just like white people's stupidity in the past. Well, it's just funny to me when you go, God has biblical theology and Satan has critical race theory. I'm just like, right. wow, that, that one, that's an interesting dichotomy. Right. <laughs> right. right, right. It, it's so absurd. It makes me want to laugh. I don't even know how to fully respond okay, to it so, intellectually. So, <laughs> and, but, uh, but can we break down critical race theory and then break down maybe what would be a healthier theology and then kind of maybe apply why a white male from Arizona would consider critical race theory as satanic. Yeah. Well, I mean, he says more than it's satanic. He's saying this is Satan's, you know, uh, strategy, right? Ideology. You know, so critical race theory is from Satan. So would would, like a proper summary be that he's saying that Satan has used black people as his hands and feet of his work. Well, that's not... A, I, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying just to be very clear. No, but I think that that is the uns- summar- that's the unspoken domino of of what he's saying. Of what right? he's saying, yeah. And would you, yeah? And so it's it it's uh, a little bit of a uh, um, you it's sort of ironic, right? I just <laughs> dropped this on you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I have so much I want to say. I think we probably should um, come back to that as a long episode, and and to give critical race theory a 
an honest and objective kind of approach. I'm, I'm going to be a person that will not lean toward a history that's only defined by race. Okay. And so the aspect of critical race theory, where everything then is seen through the filter of race, um, is to me too limiting. It's too shallow. It doesn't, it's not complex enough to really deal with the realities of human history. But can we deal with this statement really quick? Yeah, but it seems I, but, but to say that critical race theory is Satan's strategy, right. it's his theory. Um it's it's abhorrent, right? Yeah, and it's one of the reasons why it's so hard for me sometimes to identify myself as a Christian because I go, is this the level of thinking yeah. that we have? How can our thinking be so shallow and 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 um well, it's it's can you okay, so we're we're now we're giving our opinion of it. Yes. Can you break it down? I only have an opinion. <laughs> so the person who spoke this is someone who well, he sees himself as a as an intellectual, theological intellectual. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And and I did think it was for me the the second funniest line other than and Satan's was ideology. I have a thirty five thousand no, page says, book. And I am here. And I am here to help. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, that's the line that really struck me. I'm going, wow, this is what a salesman says, and he he tells you um, there there is a line that's about to eat you. Yeah. And uh, yeah, but yeah. I'm here to help. Yeah. And I'm a, and and I, I I think that one the moment you start having someone drive you by fear, yeah, you need to be careful what cave you're running into. Okay, because you're not running from the lion; you're running into the lion's den. Yeah, but I, he's no. But to me, he's no different than like when you turn on like super super post apocalyptic Christian television that's like trying to sell you revelation rations. Like to these old women in the middle of America, and and old men in the middle of America, buying it. they buy it, and then they buy these like. You know, for $5,000, you can survive for 75 years in a post-apocalyptic world with rations that you shouldn't feed to, like, animals. But <laughs> Do it, you really want to survive if this is all you have to Yes. Eat? No. <laughs> Take me at the end. Let me die. Yeah. But, but it feels like that. It feels like, okay, if you're, if, if, if you're like, considering yourself a faith person, you're on a journey of faith, or you say you're a Christian, and you're letting people sell you books because it's like the devil versus God um, language. Like this is, it's not too late for you. We got you. This episode's going to help you. Yeah. I just think that you need, we all need to think in more complex ways. And we also need to realize that sometimes just because an ideology um, is um, not accurate or wrong or incorrect, it doesn't mean there are not truths within it that you need to pay attention. Okay, so give me a, okay, because you definitely come from the perspective of like, there's always a truth between us. Yes, there always is a truth between us. And if you don't pay attention to it, you're going to end up with more extremes. Okay. The reason we end up with such extremes is people don't listen to each other when they're actually having rational conversations. Okay, so what would you say is the truth behind this statement? Well, the truth behind the statement is we cannot escape that racism is a part of our nation's history. And the moment you try to pretend that's not real, you're creating spaces for things like critical race theory because you're not dealing with reality. The, the fact that as a nation, we're only now taking down the statues of, of Confederate generals and Confederate leaders tells me, oh, there's so much room for a polarizing perspective that would be critical race theory. And so if you're upset that critical race theory is out there, then you should be equally accepted, upset that as a nation, we have allowed racism and social injustice to be prevalent in our society. And 
because we create the environments for polarizing views. And so then, but when the moment we say everyone's a racist, right? Every white person's a racist. You, you've just, you've lost the plot because this nation wouldn't actually be turning the way it is um, if there were not a ton of white people who were anti-racist. But it is interesting though, because yeah. I want, well, when I want to get 15 seconds on critical race theory, can you just go? Uh, the ideology that all of human history is filtered through race and that the spectrum from whiteness to darkness uh, is the spectrum of, of power to injustice. Okay, and what are your thoughts on that? My, my thoughts on it is that um, that theory has weight because there's so much historical application of it. You do see um, European people colonizing, destroying indigenous peoples in Latin America, South America, in the United States. You do see uh, Europeans taking Africans into slavery. So you have a historical weight of data to say, you see, this is where this theory is. No, accurate. I know, I know what, I know what it is, but what right. are your thoughts on it? My thoughts are that it, it does not adequately um, identify the issues in humanity. What would be the issues? Well, because it's like pretending that um, Africans didn't make slaves of Africans. Right. It's like pretending that white people did not make slaves of white people. Right. Uh, right, right. It, it isn't really a, a um, an issue that's simply divided by color. It's more divided by economic class. It's divided by um, the, the abuse of power. It's, it's divided by technology. What nations actually advance technology faster than other nations. You, yes. can, you can make an argument that the nations that are more technologically astute are the nations that, um, in, that conquer and destroy other nations. So we talk about this because yes. all of a sudden one cut, no waters, the other cut waters. Um, so, <laughs> I mean, we have Mayan heritage in right. our blood and your mom, my grandmother would, would, beat me over like we, we she would smack me if, yes, yes, if I, I said that we were for, for a long time I, I wouldn't even be able to acknowledge that i had mayan blood because in in central and south america or in central america they were they, they were the oppressors they were yes, they, they, they i'm were, trying to use were, very like pc they were, they were violent they were brutal they, they, they destroyed civilizations and ate their hearts and like when you go to a mayan temple mm -hmm. it is as if you were going to some i mean given okay so Can it would be equivalent to keeping like Internment camps in Germany, like it's, it's like you tour internment camps is as if you're going to the Mayan temples, but we don't look at it the same way. You go to Mayan temples, it's where they would hold a man's heart and eat it in front of tens of thousands yeah. of people. I mean, part of the dilemma is if we go, why to, do we still keep that around if well, we're canceling everything? Yeah, I think we have a romantic view of indigenous. Was that clear enough or no? No, it's very clear, almost a little bit uncomfortable. Okay. And uh, what I'm saying is, no, we, we romanticize indigenous violence and, and then we um, hold um, European violence at a, different, at a different level. Right. And what we need to realize is that, and I, I talk about this in one of my talks recently, that what's interesting to me is science isn't making the world better. And if you look at human history, Nagasaki and Hiroshima, the two most devastating attacks in human history, uh, wiping out civil, you know, uh, civilians in these two cities in Japan during World War II with the bomb. That's the result of science. Right. Because, you know, a lot of people go, oh, well, you know, it, it's religion that's made the world 
bad. It's you know we right. need to get religion because of the, get rid of religion because of the crusades. We need to get rid of Christianity because the crusades are going. We never say we need to get rid of science because of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Right. We never say we need to get rid of science because of the napalming in in, in Vietnam. Yeah. And or the mustard to, gas. Yeah. We in need to realize that that science is not making the world better because the problem is not science, and and in the same way the problem is not religion. The problem is humans, and the problem is not the color of our skin. The problem is the condition of our hearts. And that's why I think critical race theory is inadequate because it doesn't deal with the essence of human beings. It's trying to deal with something that's superficial. And, uh, and it, the whole concept of white privilege, and fortunately, I'm, I'm in this moment in history not white. And right. I'm an immigrant. I'm Latin. And, but, I, but when I was offered a scholarship in college because I was an immigrant Latino, I turned it down because I did not want to be given money because of my minority status. Right. And, and for me, whenever someone would say to me, oh, we want to give you an advantage because you're a Latin or we give you an advantage because you're an immigrant, I never took it because I felt like the, the most racist thing a person could say to me is you cannot succeed in this world without us giving you an advantage over white people. And I think a, a lot of us who are ethnic minorities, we need to realize that's not a compliment. Right. And, and from my perspective, nothing and no one can stop me from um, creating the life I want to create. I feel, right. uh, you know, born to create. And, and so, but that goes on to a, a kind of a, a different subject. And, and, and so I, 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 but even if I completely disagree with critical race theory, even if I think- Do it, you? Um, I, I will have to come back on it. I'm okay, going to so we'll it more open carefully. It. Yeah, yeah, we'll because, open this up next time. Um, but listen to me. There's a difference between disagreeing with a theory and saying, oh, this is Satan. Right. See, because to demonize something is to, is to diminish it and say, there's nothing meaningful to engage here. There's no conversation that I should be having. Yeah. And, and frankly, that's a part of the problem. Right. Is that. Um, we haven't been willing to listen to people who disagree with us. And as a nation, we, we, and we need to not silence it. We need to, I, I understand the danger of teaching it to children because. What are you saying? Like, I'm confused. Like in, in schools, they're talking about teaching critical race theory to children. Right. I don't want white children at the age of six being told because you're white, you're inherently a, the the problem of society, but it's what it's what Germany did to to Germany. To, to, did, it's what Germany did to to young Germans in like since since World War Two. They we, teach at an elementary school that they are the bad guys, and that's why they can't have an army. It's why they can't have a military. It's why they are never allowed certain uh, uh, like national rights, not rights, yeah. but like protections. Yeah, because what when they have it, they do evil things. Yeah, and I. I actually, and I think this is why it would be so important for us to go maybe to into this deeper. I would just, say, I would just say, the moment though Christians start going, oh, this is God's perspective and this is Satan's perspective, you're you're just basically saying, um, I can discount everything someone else is seeing about the reality of human history, and uh, and I don't have to pay attention and listen. What it reminds it's me, lower level thinking. It's lower level thinking, but it almost takes it back to like a colonial level of thinking. Like he feels one degree off of what he feels like a movie depiction of what a slave owner sounds like. Yes. Like literally like freedom for slaves is satanic. You know, like it, it sounds, and, it and sounds Christians like Christians would have said that. Yes. 
so much of it, right? Which is beautiful in this way, not that's not beautiful, but this, I think this truth is beautiful is that some of the most beautiful music and culture comes from the churches in which slaves created during slavery, right? Like the culture, the gospels, the, the like the, the gospel the, music, like the, the, the that no, has but, transformed all of America. But, but what music. is it called? It's like the old, <laughs> old spirituals. What are they called? The old, um, the spirituals, the old spirituals. Yeah, yeah, the yeah. Old spirituals, yeah. So no, so like, I mean, it's interesting, right? Because y- you have white people saying that this is, this is God's way and the other way is satanic. And then in the midst of slavery, hundreds of years ago, you had the, like a beautiful black church arise out of slavery, right? You had the mm-hmm. spirituals, the Negro spirituals, you had like gospel music, you had the movement with Mar- like Dr. Martin Luther King, it came from the church. Like there was so yeah. much that came from the church that white people would have said that's satanic. But how do you have so much, I know that we said we're not gonna talk about this, but how do you have so much, how do you have a polarizing belief system inside of one belief system? Wow, I mean, because the problem- Does that make sense? The question makes sense? Yeah, well, yes. Like you have two parties saying the other man is satanic. Yeah, well, saying an ideology is satanic, right? You know, that a theory is satanic or that a view of human history is satanic. But that same person probably wouldn't argue as strongly saying, um, Western Christianity that actually created the frameworks in which slavery was acceptable and racism has been acceptable. Right. And the view that white people and black people should not marry each other because it's not biblical. Uh, you don't hear the same kind of adamant um, identification with those views being from Satan. Right. And, and, and so I, I, a lot of times when we start saying, oh, that's Satan, it, what do you mean? Summarize that real quick. You're saying the black church doesn't say that about... No, what I'm saying is that the moment a white person is going, oh, critical race theory, that's right. from Satan. But you don't hear that same person going, oh, and all the things that were taught in the Christian worldview yes. about white supremacy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that, that wasn't Satan. That's just, you know, that's, that, you know, that's just the church evolving going, hey, you need to be really straight up. If you're going to call one side of this perspective satanic, you better be ready to call the other side of that satanic too. Because they would actually believe, and by they, meaning this white guy from Arizona, would believe that being white is a gift from God. I guarantee you. Yeah, he I don't may know. not I don't, say it I like that, but they wouldn't not say it. I don't want to project what he w- would say. I, what I want to project, what I can say is, what okay. he is saying and what he's not saying. So what he is, okay, so here's <laughs> yeah. my, so what he is saying mm-hmm. is also said by people that would believe that being light-skinned and white is a gift from God. Yes. And that, right? Yeah. So he's trying to sell a book and a website that is aligned with a perspective that is from these white supremacists. It is a problem. Yeah. Yeah, okay. it's, it's a, go to the next thing, right? Okay. I think that's going to be a great episode when we talk about it. I, I think it's an important thing to break down more and more and more. And, and I think sometimes there's nuances like, you know, um, you know, the initial conversations about Black Lives Matters at first are about the importance of, of black lives. Right. And then you realize, oh, no, there's other kind of issues here. I go to the website and I see on the on the homepage of the website, one of their driving goals is the destruction of the nuclear family. Yeah, yeah and I'm going well, super dark. What, what, I'm going, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm all for BLM in terms of a movement where black lives matter. I understand even why 
saying all lives matters actually waters down the importance of what needs to be said. But then I'm going, oh, wait a minute, but I am not ever going to advocate, even walk alongside of someone who's saying, I want to destroy the nuclear family. <coughs> and, I, and I think a part of the dilemma here is that, that things get attached to meaningful things that are actually destructive. Yeah. And, and we don't even realize what we're getting pulled into. And so what I would say is that there are people who are concerned about critical race theory because they're trying, they're, they're concerned that this is going to raise up a generation of children who are white, who feel that somehow being white makes you inherently evil. Yeah. And, and at the same time, we don't want to diminish the importance of having conversations about how difficult it is to be born black in a society where it's a disadvantage to be black and an advantage to be white. So it's not that it's either or, it's that there are important things have to be talked about. Yeah, I agree. Okay, we're going to come back to that one. Okay, so we want to talk about a couple of things, but we're not even going to get into this now. We want to talk about the t Texas abortion laws and what's going on. The Texas abortion law, mm -hmm. the first case of, I think it's a, is it an Uber driver? No, is it a doctor who performed an abortion is not going to the Supreme Court. And so we want to talk about it, but we want to have more information. And we also want to have like a, a broader story to talk about, not just what we think of a law. In a yeah, I mean, state. people have been coming out pretty hard and fast on both ends of this uh, spectrum. And, right. and you know, I've, I've been trying to really try to understand and, and, and work from a posture of empathy. I, and that's why I started asking women right away, how, how soon do you know you're pregnant? And they were going, well, at minimally six weeks. Right, right. And uh, Brooke, you can probably testify to that better than I can. Yeah, well, we were trying to get pregnant, so I knew at six weeks because you're expecting it. You were, you were checking. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that was the, but you didn't know before six weeks. You can't know before, no. And so the dilemma is- that So the, the law says it's six weeks, it's illegal. After six weeks, it's illegal. Yeah. So, okay. And, and, or somewhere in that six week, right, it's illegal. Right. And so my question was, just from a, just from a legal perspective, you know, not whether I'm pro-life, pro-abortion, pro-choice, whatever it is, just saying, if you're trying to be sincere and legitimate and giving women who have uh, either, you know, become pregnant through rape or incest or, um, or, or maybe just, um, you know, feel that they're not in a, um, in a position to carry the pregnancy through, I'm, I'm trying to be like, you know, more broad in that, they won't know in six weeks. Right. And so basically what you're saying is you can have an abortion up to the time where it's possible to know you're pregnant. And after that, you can't. And so you're basically, I think, essentially then eliminating abortion completely, which I don't know if that was the intent. And oh, it absolutely was the intent. Yeah. And, and so I'm looking at it from a, from a national kind of perspective and, and asking the question, is the goal to try to eliminate all the abortions that are frivolous in that sense that were, you know, or the late term abortions that seem so violent and, and inhumane. Right. And um, it seemed like you should have done something that was in the first trimester. And I, and, and I'm saying this as a person who I'm not for abortion, right? You know, I'm, no. I'm for life. Yeah. And, but I'm also a person who understands the importance of, of choice and of personal freedom and, and understand that we live in a nation that is not a Christian nation. We live in a nation where we work in mutual cooperation with each other. And we try to find and create laws that um, work for the whole. Yeah, I, I think 
I think it's I think it's a bigger conversation, right, than just being pro-life or pro-choice, mm-hmm. right? I think it, it's a conversation of how to take something that is so human, mm-hmm. right, and and so heartbreaking. The reality yeah. of having to get an abortion is heartbreaking, right? Yeah. Um, and and how do you create a protective structure around something like that? Because that that is the difference of it being like biblical or it being political or it being human, right? Like I think for even for you to say like I'm so, I'm about life, someone who hears that who's who's sensitive to it would go well, now. Irwin said he's pro life, and now I can't listen to Irwin, and now I can't go to Mosaic, it and is, now I, it's that polarizing. And yeah. is this polarizing? And mm-hmm. I'm going, you know, I I I know people who have gone through this heartbreaking mm-hmm. moment, right? Yeah, and I have too, yeah. and and you do too, and and I could. One, I'm not a woman. That's another thing. And I think there's, there's, there's a, uh, we, live in a, we live in a world where men make, a, there's predominantly men are making decisions for how women take care of their bodies. And I think that is a really huge conversation that shouldn't be taken lightly, right? Mm-hmm. And then I think there's like, you know, you hear it a lot of times in Christian conservative women who are going, but, you know, even if someone's raped, does that baby not deserve to live? Mm-hmm. You know, and, 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 and I, don't, I don't know how you attack that not attack, but how do you break down that mm-hmm. that conversation and break down the thinking? But I think it's something that would be really good to talk about. Yeah. What what I, again, even when we're talking about the, the critical race theory, what I find to be really disturbing in the conversations about um, abortion and abortion laws is that uh, I hear people on the left talking as if people who are against abortion they don't care about human beings. They don't care about those babies. They're just trying to control uh, women, and and um, and and it, it it's almost as if the language is nefarious. These are evil people trying to stop you from yeah. making your free choices. And then when I hear people on the right who are pro-life talk about people having abortions, the language that is used toward even like young women who find themselves in a horrific situation you know, 16, 17 years old, pregnant, 23 years old and pregnant and, and not knowing what to do with your life or maybe not having um, the, the support system around you. Uh, we've got to stop this acerbic kind of violent language against each other. And, uh, and what concerns me is when you, when you make a law, you have to make sure that you actually mean to reinforce it. And I cannot see a world in which we're sending 19-year-old girls who uh, had an abortion to prison. You know, and and so I, I I think we have to like have a more intelligent and responsible conversation about this. And I would love a world where there was never an abortion. I also would love a world where there was never a rape. I would also love a world where no girl is ever abused. And um, we don't live in those worlds. And uh, and so to act like those worlds aren't real is not to I think deal with things in a humane way. Uh, and we can have a further conversation about this. I know it's a, a difficult and challenging situation. And, um, and I, we are both yeah. two men talking about this. I know. But I think, you know, we were talking about this this morning because something happened with mom and we were talking about women in the church and, and the place for women in church. And mom is, is very conservative but very much a strong woman. Uh, powerful. Of power and <laughs> yeah, and, and because she's been here at Mosaic and on the West Coast, she's never felt any limitations. But I think she did. I but, think she has. Well, remember, she came from the South. Because you, yeah. you got your theology degree at a school that 
decided to discredit all the women who went there. I know, and that's why I never ever acknowledged that I went to and school. And so you there. changed your degree. You received it from another. You took. You, re, you received like an honorary degree from another uh, university, university, so that I wouldn't have to ever associate with them. Yeah, because I I just think they're from Texas wrong. too, huh? Well, I mean, and then she flew to the East Coast and had a very different experience. I was going to bring that up. You told me not to bring it up. I'm not going to say where or anything like that or what happened, but you Before know, uh, she just realized that she went back 150 years in time where women were not valued, where women were seen as lesser. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and so I, 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 and that's where I, I, I have ultimate respect for women. I, I, um, I, I am a person who feels that government should be minimally involved and people should have free choice. And, and then we have to create a society where we help people make the best choices possible. And also, if, if you go to a church where, or you are part of establishment that is men only and isn't men inclusive or women inclusive, that you, I hope that this podcast like puts so much conviction into your life. Because mm -hmm. even though we are two guys talking about <laughs> spirituality, talking about our, our mental health, talking about our physical health and all the th politics, everything. Like our world would not exist without the amazing women that run so much of our world. I I have a boss that is a woman. My mother, most of my life is run by women. I have a niece and a <laughs> goddaughter and a sister who thinks she's my mom and a mom who's actually my mom. And and there we there's so we are surrounded by powerful women in our life, mm -hmm. and so I think for us we have such a beautiful and as you have created a, an organization and a and a culture where women are incredibly powerful and incredibly um, valued yeah. and valued, yeah. and so and just because you are the primary voice doesn't make other voices um, um, less. Mm -hmm. And so you know I think if 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 that's a, something I hope we can really get into because I I think there needs to be a huge changing of the guard. Mm -hmm. in the way that churches function. Yeah. And it does feel like, because I went to Montana last week, it does feel like the middle of America is getting left behind. Mm -hmm. You go to these like mountain towns and it they feel like they are 100 years in the past. Well, one thing we've said for decades is that uh, human history doesn't happen at the same time. And so there are places in the world that are a thousand years in a different time. Yeah. And some 500 years, some 200 years, some 50 years. And so you can travel even across the United States yeah. and travel across decades of time, both into the past and into the future. But the thing I want to just talk about for 15 minutes here, maybe okay. 10 minutes here, is, is something that happened. And we were talking about someone in our family who I love so much. And I was talking about how I'm always asking, like, what can I do for you? How can I help? Can I, can I do this? Can I do this? And they're always, they're, the response is always, you know, I'm good. I'm good. I'm doing good. I'm fine. Yeah, I'm good. And I know they're not good. And not that they're bad, but I know that like their life is full. I know that there's so much. Their husband is on tour. <laughs> and so I was like, how do you ask for help? And how do you help someone who doesn't necessarily need the help, but needs the help? It's a really good question. I mean, you can see a spectrum of people. There's some people, all they do is ask for help. Me. And uh, no. <laughs> <coughs> and no, because I was going to say, but they never help. Right. And that's not you. You help a lot. And um, oh, you're saying offer help. Yeah. There's some people who. Who offered to help and never help. Who never help, ah. but they always asked for help. Yes. And. And so one thing you should look at is 
Are you a person that always expects other people to come through for you, but you don't come through for other people? Yeah. And you're going to end up burning a lot of relational bridges over time. And yeah. It's just exhausting. Yeah. But there are some people who just, it's just brutal for them to ask for help. Yeah. And, and there are people all around them usually who want to help. And the, and the sad thing is sometimes they think there's nobody here to help me, but it's because they've actually closed every possible door for people to help them. Is there... I'm using my little sister as an example. But your mom's like that. But mom's like that too. Your mom, she'll help anyone, but she would never rather, she'd rather be crushed under the weight of everything than to ask for help. It is insane. Cause like, I know this cause we will do Thanksgiving every year <laughs> and we'll invite a bunch of friends over who are like in the city and stuck in the city that have family here. And they'll be like, you know, some people will come in and, and some people she feels very comfortable yeah. putting them to work. My mom is a managerial mother. Yeah, Jamar Brown King is and always Eric Roy. Is, yes, <laughs> they're always on the mashed potatoes, the green beans. They're always on the vegetable section. It is interesting that we know a lot of men who are married who actually cook, but we know a lot of wives who are married. They're married to that don't cook at all. Brooke, do you cook? I do. Andy does steaks and stuff like that. All right. So he does the the hunting and the killing. The hunting and the killing, <laughs> like a good husband. You do the farming. <laughs> I do the farming and I'll watch after the Where baby. Where are we? I go to Montana one week. I'm wearing a plaid shirt. Um, All right. Okay. But here's the thing. Because obviously Mariah's the best. But mm -hmm. she's like, she is the most strong. You would never know if she's having a bad day. Unless you know her. Mm -hmm. And then you really know. But like, how do you, how, it brought, I just brought up this, 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 this conversation. Because I'm like, I think there's moments in my life where, whether it's my mental health or just a situation in life, even just like, and I'm talking about Mariah's stuff is like simple. Like, do you need to go to the grocery store for you because you have a baby and your husband's on tour and you're recording a record and you're literally doing boom, boom, yeah. boom, boom. And I had a moment because I was, you know, I had to go sign these papers at the very moment that she asked me to walk her dog. Right, I needed you to come to the house to sign papers. And I was just like five minutes away at her house while walking she was in the dog. studio <laughs> walking her dog. And, and you were calling me like, you have to be here now. And I'm like looking at Pablo and Pablo's looking at me and I'm like, I have to leave. I'm feeding you. And then I'm You were leaving. afraid to not come to <laughs> I was afraid because this is the thing though, is I know that when she does, <clears throat> when she lets you in, you don't want to let her down. Right. You know, like I really do feel that like for the most part, I know that I can't be there for people as much as I'd like to because we travel so much or we do X, Y, Z. We're so busy. So if someone asks me to do something I can do, I do it. I want to do it. Mm -hmm. and I want to do it the best. Mm -hmm. But how do you ask for help? Okay, here's one thing. If you're a person that doesn't ask for help. Yes. I'm almost going to guarantee you this is your experience when you ask for help. Oh, no. No one is able to help you or willing to help you. Yeah. And the reason is because you don't like asking for help, so you ask at the last minute, which makes it almost impossible for people to say yes. So first of all, just because people don't say yes, you shouldn't assume they don't want to say yes. You might need to step back and realize, oh, I don't like asking for help, so I wait too long, and then I don't get the help I need. So if you could have a different posture and say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to recognize I need help in right. life. Yeah. And I'm overwhelmed. I got a lot going. And I have people in my life who are really great. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And if I give them a little bit of notice, yeah. <laughs> a little bit of time, yeah. then um, they're probably more willing and able to help. And then also, sometimes when we ask for help because we're not good at asking for help, we're not skilled at asking for help right we don't know that there are parameters asking for help what are the parameters you have to let a person know uh when you need them and when you don't need them anymore right right, right. <laughs> you, you know yeah you can't just go hey can you can you help me today 
Yeah. You, you hey, know? I need you at 9 a.m. to 11 a.m. Yeah. And then you got to hold that. I'll feed that. you afterwards. You got to hold that, you know, yeah. and be true. And then if you can't do it, you have to call and go, um, hey, uh, it's 1030. I know I said it'd be there at 11. Is there any way? Or you have to give them a way out. Because one of the challenges is if a person says yes. Right. So, so let's say I say yes to you to help you for three hours. Right. But then it's going to take six hours. And I don't have any, any noble way to get out of it now. Yeah, I I'm willing to give you three hours, but I'm not willing yeah. to give you six hours because I I have to go do something else. <laughs> I I need to go work out, or I need to go to the movies, or I need to go yes. whatever it is, right? Yes. Because then now you feel guilty because you're going. Wait a minute, I I committed three, but now they're taking three more, and if I don't do the three more, the the first three I gave don't count anymore. I haven't done a good thing. Now I didn't do the six, so I'm not a good friend. So we're really talking about how to be a good helper and how to be someone who's good at asking for help. Yeah, it's it's really about understanding people do want to help, but they have their own limitations of how much help they can actually provide. Yes, and I think, <laughs> but I do find myself more helpful outside of my family circle. Yes, because family usually asks with a sense of obligation. Or they just tell you. <laughs> they tell you, and uh, I want you to do this, you're doing this. And, and with family, and you know, Brooke or Austin, love to hear your perspective on this. Please do. It feels like with family, when you help, there's not a, really a sense of gratitude. It's more of, oh, well, you should have done that, your family. Yes. <laughs> so you don't get the same like psychological benefit. They don't emotionally repay you. But should you need the emotional repayment? Yes. <laughs> I would. I would. <laughs> I would love to. I would love a little bit. I think that came from heaven. I don't know. I just like, <laughs> look, it doesn't matter whether, quote, you should need the emotional repayment. You do need the emotional repayment of gratitude. Uh, yeah. Would you acknowledge that, Brooke? I acknowledge it, sir. <laughs> no, because, look, if I do something for you and I don't feel like you're grateful at all, I'm probably not cycling back to do it for you again. Oh, for sure, no. Right? For sure, no. And like, yeah. Yeah. Like I, yeah. But can I come, can I come from personal experience though? Okay. One thing I would say is that like, I know that there are days, I'm going now from like an emotional thing. Like I told you this, it's like Mariah drives me crazy because I want to help her. But then she feels so guilty for asking me for help that she ends up apologizing the whole time while I'm helping her. And then I'm exhausted because now I have to help her and console her and be like, no, girl, I'm good. I like wanted to do this. Yeah, it's funny. Uh, getting help from Mariah, I think is easy. E super easy. Helping Mariah is like pulling teeth. Yes. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> she has incepted us. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> um, but now that she, you know, she's not only married and, but she also has, you know, Juno and, and Pablo and she has a, and Pablo in a full-time job the and she yeah. has the band. And, um, I, I actually think that she's become more, I don't know if it's more comfortable or just, just accept the realization that she needs help. And here's a crazy thing. And that we want to help. Like yesterday yes. she asked me, you know, when we were going to, um, this soccer match, I said, not till six 30, she goes, Oh, then maybe. You can watch Juno. You, you, your mom can watch Juno from three, you know, to six. And and I know she's trying not to put it on me. You, yeah, you know, yeah, but, yeah. Uh, but I r rushed home. Yeah. And I and I took care of Juno and yeah. I had the best time of my life. And we had such great conversations. Yeah. I know she's only four months old, but we've been talking for she a while. She talks so and, much. And 
make so and, many noises. And it was so meaningful to me to get to do that. Yeah. Uh, and I, you know, it's funny. I don't even know if she should say thank you. I think I should say thank you. <laughs> I never leave her baby. Like she, I remember, I don't know. So, okay. So we're kind of just talking about Mariah right now, but how do, it's so, okay. So ask for help, be reasonable with time, make a plan, help those people, help whoever's helping you understand what they're, what's required of them. Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Or yeah. What, what you need. And, and then if it ends up being more, just realizing that person may not be capable of doing more. It doesn't mean that they haven't really helped, wanted to help. Right. You, you know? Yeah. And, and, and I'm just talking about everyone because I find this to be true of my friends. I, I yeah. find it to be true of us. Yeah. I mean, in our, in our marriage, you know, throughout, throughout the years, it was always challenging because it, it was always hard to get Kim to be willing to ask for help. Yeah. And, and then, but I think because of that, we ended up, um, we just made a decision early on. We, were, we paid a lot of people to do what uh, other people would do just out of friendship. Yeah. So that no one would ever feel like we took advantage of them. Right. And, but, it, but ironically, it limits the depth of the friendships you can have. It does. Because if you help is let, a two-way street. That's right. And I, 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 I'm, I learned this a long time ago. Like I, I love being generous. I love giving gifts. I love helping yeah. people. I love coming through for people. Yeah. And then I, I started reading these psychological assessments on human relationships and found out that when you do something for someone, like when you buy something for someone or when you sacrifice something for someone, you bond to them, but they do not bond to you. And I began realizing, oh, this is why I feel such deep bonds to people. But they oftentimes don't feel the same bond because one, I didn't ever ask them to help me. Two, I didn't let them help me. Or three, maybe they were not as inclined to help. And so there was always like these one-way relationships yeah. where I felt really deeply connected and, and I couldn't understand how they didn't feel deeply connected. Yeah. And one of the things I began to realize was that um, when you serve another human being, it doesn't connect them to you. It connects you to them. And, and so if you don't let your friends also be there for you, you're actually circumventing the, the healthy process of having meaningful friendships. Mm. For probably 30 years, I didn't let anyone else buy a meal. I bought every breakfast, every lunch, every dinner for at least 30 years yeah. for every person in my life. Yeah. And, and then I realized, oh, everyone who goes to eat with me, they don't even pull out their wallets. They just know I'm paying. Yeah, it, and sometimes there'd be 20, 30 people there and I'd be yeah. paying for every single person. Yeah, And one of the things that I had to shift in my own life is that when a friend would offer to take me to lunch or take us to dinner and they were to pay, I, I had to go through the painful process of letting them pay. Well, we do it now with yeah. you. Like my friends will pay for dinners with our family mm -hmm. and like, I'll do it. Like I'll pay, I don't know, like when, I remember when, I don't know. I mean, that's the funny thing is, right? Because you pay me. So then it's really just you buying dinner, but through me. <laughs> but I have to make the conscious decision to yeah. pay for a dinner or pay for clothing or pay for, you know, pay for a gift or whatever it is. But I do, I, you know, you've always taught me that like help is a two-way street. Mm -hmm. If generosity, generosity, commitment, loyalty, loyalty cannot just go one way. Yeah. If you're only loyal to them they're, and they're not loyal to you, you have to ask yourself that question, right? Like, is this person actually loyal to me? We were, I was talking about this with someone who, you know, works for, for a company. And I was like, you work for someone who does not care if you're happy. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't mean that that needs to be the employer's prime objective, but 
I was watching this show last night and it's Jeff Daniels talking and he's the FBI director of Comey. Have you heard about this, Brooke? It's on Netflix, a four-part series. It's phenomenal. It's on, it's, it's on, I think it's the FBI director Comey who mm-hmm. is his leading up to his term. He's supposed to be in a 10-year term when Trump comes into office. Oh, the Comey rule. The Comey mm-hmm. rule. But his first day as the FBI director, Obama appoints him and hires him. And which is pretty remarkable because he's, the first thing he says to him in the show is, I, you know, it's, it's, it's an honor to meet you, sir, Mr. President. I uh, just want to be really straightforward. I, I didn't vote for you either time. <laughs> <laughs> and he goes, I didn't expect you to have voted for me. I expected you to have done the opposite. And it's why I'm choosing you because I want someone who, mm. if you ever have to investigate my cabinet or me, you know, God forbid, but, but, um, or, you know, but I want you to be ruthless. You know, and it was a really interesting conversation, Mm. but it it is, it is kind of, he says this thing on his first day of being the FBI director. He says, I want you to fall in love. I want you to love somebody because I want you to remember that this is why we do this, that, that, that being in love, that loving someone is a part of this whole thing, that having joy at work, I want you to have joy at work. Mm. And he would do these things in his meetings. We'd go like, I want you all to take an hour off. Just go outside, go to the park, do something and come back and we'll come back with fresh minds and new ideas, and new creativity. Mm-hmm. And he realized that like joy and you're like, you're sitting in front of like the head offices of the FBI. Like I could not imagine them going, I think what you're supposed to be telling me is like, go catch some criminals. <laughs> and he says, he's like, the first rule is, you know, work, work, give it your all because the taxpayers deserve it. Mm-hmm. Second one, bring joy to the job. Make sure you're having fun every day. Mm-hmm. Three, go love someone because that's important. Mm. And I was like, it was such a fascinating thing on like how to work inside of an organization that obviously deals with so much heaviness. Like how do we handle the heaviness? How do we ask for help in the heaviness? And how do we find a healthy solution to dealing with the things that we deal with? It's interesting um, when you mentioned that those lines for the Comey roles that I have a friend who um, is, you know, super successful financially, has a massive company. Um, I was going through a divorce really secretly and he sent me a text finally after an event and he said, Hey, I've been keeping something from you and my marriage is coming to an end. I've been too ashamed to tell you. Yeah. So I called him right away and, um, and let him know, you know, I'm so, I'm so sorry that you, that I did not become a good enough friend that you could trust me with your pain. Yeah. And I want to fix that. Yeah. And. And then I said, hey, can, can you do me a favor? And he said, sure, anything. I said, uh, would you let me call you every week to make sure you're doing okay? And he was telling uh, Kim, your, your mom, uh, the story. He said, when he said, can you do me a favor? I thought he was going to ask me for something, you know, in the business world or something. And then the favor was, would you let me call you every week? And he, was, he said, I was so confused going, how is that a favor for you? <laughs> and, uh, and really to me, when someone allows you into their life and allows you to serve them, it is a favor. Wow. They're doing you a great kindness by allowing you to be a part of their life and a part of their journey. Yeah. And so I just would just call him and see how he's doing. And, you know, and he'd send me photographs when he was traveling and we'd just stay in touch and we've done so. And I actually think it's an incredible privilege and gift when someone invites you to be their friend and invites you to help and serve them. Right. And so when you say, you know, how do we, ask for help, maybe is real, maybe realizing there are people that would consider it a gift to be your friend. People who would really consider it a privilege to be there for you. And 
Um, and sometimes you don't know who they are right. until you ask. And when you ask people for help, and some people are, they're not going to help you, you at least now have a, a clearer filter of who your acquaintances are and who your friends are. Yeah. And it doesn't mean they're not a great acquaintance. They're just not going to be a great friend. Yeah. And then you'll find that person, and you have people like this, that you have people who get on a plane for you. Yeah. And they'd come across the country or from their country to you, this country yeah. to be there for you if you said, I need you tomorrow. Yeah. And those kinds of friendships are pretty rare. They're rare. And, and it, it says a lot about you as a person, whoever you are listening, when you have people who, are, who want to serve you. Right. And because people in the end have this great filter. They're not going to help someone that doesn't really, in that sense, make their life richer and uh, and better yeah and um but i am convinced that the 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 gnat of friendships is serving each other mm. you're serving people you letting others serve you i love it i'm gonna wrap this episode up yeah all right thank you for having thank you for having this conversation with me today it's been so much fun so a couple of things you have some merch that has come out the genius of jesus merch yeah i do and it's on your site shop.earlmcmanus.com. The link is in your bio. And I'll say anyone who's familiar with the McManus Gallery and yeah. uh, our collections there, yeah. um, you need to run and buy the Genius of Jesus merch because yeah. you're never going to see this price point ever no, again no, no. with my name on it. No, we, we're, you know, no. like it's stuff we do is nice. So it's, yeah. it's not, you know, it's not the cheapest. Oh, I love the sweats, the sweatshirt, and I love the shorts. Those are all my favorites. Yes, the water bottle, the hat. Oh. The shorts. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm hoodie. wearing the hat all the time. You are wearing the hat all the time. It says <laughs> yeah. genius. I love it. I'm excited. It, it's it's available now. So go yeah. check it out. And and I think it's amazing stuff. Yeah. It's, it's really so cool. And as we've been like revamping, getting McManus Gallery ready to go for the fall, I'm like, I'm really excited to to see this collection. Like it's almost sold out. So like, I think you have to go and get it now. Yeah. And I, lo I love the Hebrew, the genius of Jesus, the man who changed everything. It's all on the, it's on the sleeves and everything. Yeah. It's so cool. That's pretty cool. One of my buddies, Philippe, uh, he DM'd it to me. And I, I don't I don't know. His face story is, is a unique one. But he 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 says that <laughs> he'll joke with me like, I'm a Christian now. I'm like, <laughs> OK, but he he like screenshot it and sent it to me. He was like, dude, I love this stuff. It looks, looks amazing. I bought a shirt. So I'm pumped. Go check it out. Rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts. Um, go subscribe to our YouTube channel. Also, go and check out the Genius of Podcast. Uh, you just recorded a new episode with R Willie Robertson from the Duck Dynasty. It was so good. So much fun. That's amazing. So I can't wait to see it. All right. We will see you next week. Talk to you soon. All right. Take care. All right. Bye. Love you, Dad. Bye.